0: I'm Michael Winship. This is a Moyers & Company Podcast Extra. I'm talking with Dave Zirin, who's the sports editor of The Nation magazine, also an author, journalist, commentator. His newest book is Brazil's Dance with the Devil, the World Cup, the Olympics, and the Fight for Democracy. He's in Rio now at the World Cup Dave, it seems to me that, that um, there were protests before the London Olympics two years ago and lots of stories about cost overruns and improprieties. But once the games actually began, a lot of the anger seemed to dissipate. And the same thing seemed to happen in Sochi. What's the mood like there?
1: Well, first of all, we should be clear that the demonstrations in uh, Brazil, throughout Brazil, Uh, far, far uh, uh, advance, or in advance of anything that we saw in London or anything uh, that certainly that we saw in, in Russia or Sochi, and frankly, they're in advance of anything we've seen before any mega event, arguably, in history. I mean, you have to go back to 1968 Mexico City Olympics to find even the slightest parallel. I mean, every sector of Brazil's economy has been on some form of strike. Um, I'm in Rio right now. All of the museums are closed uh, because all the cultural workers are on strike. Uh, protests a year ago around the Confederations Cup, uh, which is like a warm-up to the World Cup, brought well over a million people into the streets, the largest demonstrations Brazil has seen since the dictatorship. But your question really is about, now that the games have started, has all of that dissipated? And that that's a terrific question, and it, it's something people are trying to get their heads around. Because first of all, the demonstrations are, without question, smaller. They tend to number um, in the hundreds or the low thousands, not in the hundreds of thousands or millions. Um, but some of that has to do with the fact that there are also just more unions involved who are using strike tactics as a response, not demonst- not street demonstration tactics. Um, and also some of the social movements have taken the land occupations in this process not going in the streets. And there are two reasons for it. One is that people just feel unsafe going to these demonstrations. And the second reason is just the overwhelming show of force by the Brazilian military police. And then real fears that there will be either um, agitators inside the demonstrations, uh, either black-block anarchists or police posing as black-block anarchists who use provocation as a way to actually invite more repression, more tear gas. And as as we saw yesterday, um, a police officer even firing live ammunition.
0: Yeah, I saw that AP report this morning. Um, what are the black blocs, exactly?
1: The black block, and um, they exist, of course, in the United States as well. Um, they are anarchist protesters, they, they wear all black, uh, they cover their faces, and they see property damage as a legitimate form of protest, particularly property damage that's targeted at banks and financial institutions. But I, I do have to say, based on the demonstration that I was at yesterday, it was very different than like the AP described. So they described the Black Block as being the primary group at the demonstration and breaking windows in advance of the police firing in tear gas. I have to tell you, being there, that's just simply not what I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, that the Black Block represented a, a minority of demonstrators that were there, a small group. Of course, a small group can still do things like break windows, but I saw the tear gas was fired in in advance of any broken window that I saw. And I didn't even see any break broken windows at all, to be honest. But that being said, I didn't see a lot because my eyes were kind of teary.
0: Sounds like a lot of the uh, reporting that I saw uh, compared to my own experiences during the, the Vietnam demonstrations.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I can see why, except the, the, the tremendous... Irony, though, that people are in Brazil are protesting a soccer tournament. Right, you know, it's this, um, and it just says something about a the degree to which people in Brazil, like like the group in Brazil, do feel alienated from just all of the spending that's taken place for the World Cup, and 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 the fact that FIFA, the organization that oversees international soccer. Um, has just come in and run roughshod over the country in terms of their own tax breaks, the corporatization, the exclusion zones, the World Cup courts, so many things that in a country that has only been out of dictatorship for several decades, um, less than 30 years, I mean, th- th- these are these are strong echoes of a dictatorship that people thought was in their past.
0: I'm especially interested in these FIFA World Cup courts. I know they did this in South Africa as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's actually not that dissimilar from things that exist um, in the United States at certain sporting events. What it basically just means is uh, fast track courts. Sort of like the Republican
0: Um, convention here. Yes. In 2004.
1: Exactly. Exactly. It's just fast tracking people through the courts so they can be uh warehoused, oftentimes just for the duration of the mega events themselves. But sometimes as we saw in South Africa, and I and if there are examples of this in Brazil, I do not know of them, but in South Africa there were examples of people getting decade long sentences with trials that lasted hours.
0: Speaking of 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 FIFA, I mean we're talking here about maybe as much as fifteen billion dollars for the World Cup and, and another eighteen billion for the for the Olympics. Where's the money coming from?
1: Uh, Well, some of the money is underwritten by corporations, but the problem is that in both FIFA and the IOC contracts, cost overruns are the responsibility of the state, not of FIFA and not corporations. And these events always cost more than the original estimates, particularly post-9-11, because the security interests are entirely the responsibility of the host country. And that's usually what sees a lot of the cost overruns. Uh, That... And in Brazil's case, stadium construction delays and the fact that the real estate industry in Brazil is so powerful that they, that Brazil actually insisted on building more stadiums than even FIFA wanted.
0: Well, you say in the, in the book that the World Cup and the Olympics come at an especially bad time for Brazil. Yes. Why, why do you say that?
1: Well, because, I mean, one of the reasons why Brazil took the near unprecedented step of trying to host the World Cup and the Olympics back-to-back is because the economy was growing at a fabulous rate. I remember the cover of The Economist had Rio's famous Christ the Redeemer statue actually blasting off like a rocket ship, uh, which really (laughs) says it all.
0: Well, I think we all thought the Brazilian economy was booming, and and that has, has slowed to nothing, right?
1: And that's the real issue because... The economy was booming, um, largely on the basis of exports to China, the discovery of oil, and real estate speculation. The economy was, you know, growing. I mean, even through the two thousand eight economic crisis, uh, which Lula dismissed as oh, "that's Bush's crisis, that's not our crisis, that's a U.S. crisis," and th- they thought that the next logical step would be hosting these two mega events and, and really introducing Brazil to the world as a new economic superpower. The problem, of course, is, as you said, economies tend to slow down. Yet FIFA and the IOC could not give a rat's ass if your economy has slowed down. They want their stadiums. They want their infrastructure. They want you to fulfill your security uh, mandates and that, that they have set forth for you. And so Brazil can't go to them hat in hand and say, yeah, the growth rates aren't what they work, and we maybe work with the existing stadiums now. Or you know, they, They're not going to hear that. Or they're going to threaten, like they're doing already for the 2016 Olympics, that they're not going to do it, but they're threatening to move the Olympics out of Rio. Um, If they try to pull any, oh, our economy's slow, we we need help, we need more corporate funding, we need more aid, we need a better deal. They're not going to hear any of that. And so this is the problem that Brazil finds itself in, especially because a lot of the very popular social programs that were initiated by Lula um, and kept by his um, the person who followed him, President Dilma Rousseff, these were largely funded not by, not by taxing the rich but by, by the neoliberal boom, You know, the commodities boom, the discovery of oil. And so the slowing down of that also means that the social programs slow down as well.
0: What do you mean by neoliberal, David?
1: But by neoliberalism, I mean, it's basically the, the market knows all. Um, it, it's doing a society that's, that's, that's enthralled to... Uh, the market consensus that says that, that privatization is good. Um, inequality is a natural pri- byproduct of, private- of, of of neoliberalism and privatization, and it shouldn't be something that we fear, and that social safety nets um, are something that actually can hold, a hold back growth. And so you want to make the public sector as small as possible. You want to eliminate unions as much as you can and create as much of a kind of uh, free market, Utopia that's open for business that you can. Now that being said, what's existed in Brazil has should not be under Lula and Dilma should not be described as like totally like neoliberal. You know, like like let let the chips fall where they may. It's described here as neoliberalism with Brazilian characteristics because you know they've under the Workers Party. There are less workers in unions. That's a sign of neoliberalism. Um, They've paid back all their loans to the IMF. That's a part of neoliberalism, too. And yet they've also, though, used some of the windfall to fund some of these social programs and try to fight inequality in the country. So they've tried to kind of construct a third way between between neoliberalism and uh, a more kind of state socialist enterprise, which I think many people here would support. But that being said, once again, markets go up, markets go down, and if your neoliberal boom goes down, then it's the social programs become the first to go and it looks more like the kind of austere neoliberalism that people have been protesting for the last 10-20 uh, years throughout Latin America.
0: I was I was taken in the book by a quote that you have from Renato Casentino, mm-hmm. and uh, he said, at a time when Rio de Janeiro has a chance to show the world that it can overcome the social inequality that has marked its history, it is instead reinforcing that inequality.
1: That's that's very true. I mean, and the problem with with inequality in Brazil too. Is, I mean, we're seeing this in the United States. I mean, you have you have Lloyd Blankfein, you know, the head of Goldman Sachs, speaking out against inequality. You know, he makes twenty five million a year. He says inequality is bad for a country uh, because it's impossible to really get anything done if you have basically two different countries in one. Usually these mega events exist to try to bring a country together. You know, it's like, we're all Brazil, et cetera, et cetera. I'm in Rio right now, obviously, as we're talking. I don't see many Brazilian flags out. I mean, it it is not this explosion of, of nationalism, and you have to ask yourself, why? especially in a country that, frankly, loves itself for for good reason. You ever meet a Brazilian, you know that immediately, that they're proud to be from Brazil. But you're not seeing that many uh, of the flags and the nationalism precisely because, I mean, when when it, it doesn't really feel like their World Cup. It feels like FIFA's World Cup. It's a World Cup for the wealthy, not for the people.
0: And there's also been this, you wrote about it at The Nation just in the last couple of days, this, this displacement of populations to build these stadiums and parking lots and everything else.
1: This is so ugly. I mean, to see this stuff up close is the sort of thing that makes you just, I mean, I mean, it, it, it's harrowing. Literally a five-minute walk from the Moroccan Stadium, which is the Sistine Chapel of international football, Uh, There's a place called Favela do Metro. It was the home of 700 families. Now it's the home of zero families. No one lives there anymore. Um, And people were removed for the purposes of a parking lot. And to add insult to injury, a parking lot that never got built. So now it's just like rubble, rats, waste, everything like that. And these were once people's homes. And what I did my first day here a couple days ago is uh, with Teresa Williamson from Catalytic Communities, which is an NGO that does amazing work. Um, or with, with the favelas, we walked through the, the debris. And what you see when you walk through the, just the piles of garbage is that it's not really garbage, it's people's lives. I mean, it's, it's children's dolls that are broken apart, it's furniture with the springs pulled out, it's uh, sinks and toilets that were left behind. And the, 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 this was 700 families, 700 lives. Um, And then you have to ask the question, well, what really happened to these families? I mean, the first 100 were removed at gunpoint um, within 24 hours of the Olympics coming, and it was meant to shock everybody else to get their stuff together and get out. But the last 600 families, it actually steeled their resolve. And instead of just leaving um, in fear, what they did was they organized, they protested, they pooled their money, they got legal representation, they sued the city, and they were ended up being displaced just a couple of miles uh, from away, and they were given uh, rent vouchers to be able to get started in that process. It's not a happy ending, but they got a much better deal from the government than a lot of favelados have gotten, and certainly a much better deal than the first hundred of families of their neighbors who were uh, booted aside unceremoniously.
0: Because they took a stand?
1: Because they protested, yeah. It made, and that's made a, what I've seen in Rio over the last couple of years and throughout Brazil is a lot of carrot and stick, um, and the stick is the first thing that the government uses to try to displace people. And but when you fight back against bullies, you get some of the carrot, you know, and you get a better deal when you fight back. Partly because Brazil is concerned about its public image internationally, um, particularly when foreign journalists take an interest. That that tends to be like a flashpoint for them. But the tragedy is that in very few cases do you get a favela actually surviving once Brazil wants you to go. That is that is an exception. So it's basically people fighting for their families and fighting for the best possible deal.
0: You also write about this, the stadium built in the middle of the rainforest. Yeah, in
1: Manaus. Yeah. Um, and this has recently gotten a great deal of publicity because I think it's just emblematic of a lot of the waste that we're talking about. I mean, building a $350 million stadium um, in Manaus, which is a city in the rainforest, is terrible for more reasons than I can can I can I count for you. Uh, first reason, um, it has no use value, really, after the, the World Cup is done. So what's a stadium going to do in Manaus? It's not a big soccer territory, so it's a tremendous waste of money particularly in an area that, that needs um, investment in infrastructure, that wants investment in infrastructure, that doesn't get investment in infrastructure. So to see them get uh, $350 million um, is, is just is absolutely disturbing um, uh, to go to a stadium when there's so many other pressing needs. That The second re- reason that makes it so ridiculous is that you know the materials to build the stadium had to travel down the Amazon River, which is not a short trip just to get to Manaus and the the materials were ironically from Portugal so it's once again it's the Portuguese just absolutely exploiting the hell out of Brazil which trust me people are just a tad sensitive to uh, in in Brazil I don't want to shock you but people are a tad (laughs) sensitive to Portuguese exploitation so there's that and but remember Brazil agreed to that so it's like the Brazilian government agreeing to that it's not like they were forced to work with Portugal so that, that's the, the second reason that, that, that it's such a terrible idea. And the third reason is soccer is kind of tiring. So having a soccer event in one of the most humid areas of the world is not necessarily a recipe, first of all, for the health of the players, and second of all, for good soccer. So there, there's just no sense to any of it, or at least in any way that is logical beyond just just a profit gouging by the construction industry in Brazil, which, from what I understand, the construction industry in Brazil is best understood as being their equivalent of the oil industry in the United States—like real powerful bastards who get what they want and want what they
0: get. Not to mention the environmental impact of this.
1: I write about it in the book. I mean, and this this is also very complicated for a lot of folks to understand, um, and it's, it's a complicated issue in Brazil, too, because Brazil has a long and powerful um, environmental movement, Chico Mendes might be a name that people are familiar with as a legendary Brazilian environmentalist. Uh, the indigenous people themselves um, have worked tirelessly to protect their homes and, and their communities in the Amazon. Um, and as well, environmentalists made up a key part of the original coalition that created the Workers' Party, which now governs the country. The environmentalists are now no longer part of the Workers' Party. And there's a reason for that, because the Workers' Party believes that, um, that the environment is really theirs to exploit. Remember, I mentioned about the boom. A lot of that is the cattle industry, um, the commodities boom that, that fueled it, is the cattle industry. Brazil is now the largest exporter of cattle on the planet. And, of course, it uses the raised land in the, rain, in the rainforest to do it. Um, and the, the, the part about that, that that's particularly like, difficult to unwrap is that Lula was always very fond of making very nationalist speeches, which had real resonance about, like, who the hell is the United States and these people from you know, Europe to tell us how we should use the rainforest when they've destroyed their own environments. And now they're telling us to stay in, some, in, a, in poverty you know, because to protect an environment that they couldn't protect their own, and you know that that as you might understand has real resonance with people. It's like yeah, that makes sense. You know, because uh, screw the United States, but it ignores the fact that the World Cup, particularly in a country as large as Brazil, requires a ton of intra-country travel. I mean, I mean, so air, more airports have been built, planes are flying left and right. Bra- Brazil is larger than the continental United States. You know, so people are flying all over the place to get to the different games and um, this causes nothing causes a carbon footprint quite like air travel and it's intensified dramatically.
0: And I I gather the promised uh, rail projects haven't really come through except for a few.
1: Yeah just a few of the rail projects have come through and you know the plus side for the people of Brazil is you know rail projects create jobs and you know that that that's that's something that that people support The, the bad problem though is that the rail projects themselves are largely rail projects that are about connecting uh, tourists from place to place. What you want are projects that um, have an actual use value once the confetti's been cleared away.
0: So what, ha- what happens to all these stadiums? What happens to all this, this stuff after the Olympics?
1: Well, in some places, you know, the, the stadium are in use uh, for future events the place in manaus it was suggested thank goodness this was quickly shot down but it was suggested to turn the stadium into an open air prison processing center because they said there was a, a that there were t- too few prisons in the amazon and it could be used for that of course using a stadium as a prison has a very ugly echo in latin america not something that anybody wants to hear but that was actually the fact that it was said publicly is just a big slap in the face
0: Do you have any sense at all that there will be any kind of of evaluation after the World Cup is over and going into the Olympics that that things will be reconsidered or thought about, or is that too much wishful thinking?
1: Oh, man, is that a lovely thought. Um, I I love the thought of that. It's hard to see it happening, though. Um, One reason why is that the Olympics, of course, are located entirely in Rio while the World Cup is a national event. And so, but that means, of course, the, the spending on, on the Olympics, everyone will be affected by that nationally, but the actual disruption, when you're talking about surveillance and construction and the kind of daily reminders of waste and graft, that's going to be very Rio-centric, and I, I just don't know, um, how much a move, of a movement is going to be able to summoned up in Rio by itself. That'll be what, that, that'll be like the question, that'll be the $64,000 question, or in this case, the, you know, 20 billion dollar question.
0: Dave, finally, when, in the subtitle of the book you talk about the, the World Cup and the Olympics and the fight for democracy. Why fight for democracy?
1: Well, because that, that those words were very, very carefully chosen by me and not just because I'm, I'm very OCD about book titles, but because um, the fight for democracy is about the fact that Brazil is a very young democracy. Um, it's only been out of dictatorship for less than 30 years. And what FIFA and the IOC represents to a lot of people that I talk to is a reimposition of a lot of the dictatorial norms of the past. And so democracy, if, if it's about nothing else, I mean, in the United States, we know that democracy is too often just a, a buzzword and a slogan. But if it's about nothing else, it's about self-governance. And the feeling that the coming of the World Cup and the Olympics, the influence of FIFA and the IOC, the creation of things called state of exception laws, which abrogate, uh, the Brazil's Constitution and this happens in every country that hosts these events, that the, the, the imposition of a surveillance state, that this represents uh, the abrogation of democracy and therefore the protest movement that exists in Brazil, the unions that are going on strike, the homeless workers that are occupying land, they are actually fighting for something bigger than their immediate interests. They're fighting for the democracy which was so newly won.
0: Thank you very much.